I hope as you uh, were listening today, you were to both the, the music that was playing, the worship, uh, what we were singing, what we were praising God for and about, uh, what Phil brought to us about communion. It was, a, it was an interesting theme that was kind of uh, running through that, and, and even the, the, the word that Paul brought. Um, and that is that Christ always goes before us. He is our leader, and he is our victorious Christ. He is our victorious Christ. And we are given the privilege as his people to carry forth his message, the good news of the gospel. That's a privilege we have. And I think uh, beyond that, because that can be a frightening thing for a lot of us, that the God who leads us, who gives us Christ to lead us, the God who gives us Christ to be our message, is also the God who makes us sufficient and capable to do anything that he's called us in. And for me this week, that has been something I have learned over and over and over again. Um, Especially this week, you know, as I rewrote, rewrote, and (laughs) this message that um, God is sufficient. If he's called you to do something, then he, he will be the sufficiency you need to make it happen. And he's called each of us to a task. I don't know what, what your task may be. Um, and if you ask people what makes somebody sufficient or capable or fit for a task, you might hear a lot of things. You might hear that it is their education. Or maybe it's their previous jobs they've held. Right? Maybe it's just their attitude and disposition. All of those things is what the world looks at and says, this is what makes you capable, or this is what makes you fit. But what makes you fit? What makes you sufficient and capable? What makes you sufficient and capable as a believer, as a Christian? What makes you fit and capable and sufficient to do what God has called you to do, the task he's laid before you, whatever that might be? And I hope today, as we go through and look at God's word, you'll see that it is Christ that makes you sufficient. Christ makes us sufficient to do whatever task God has asked us to do. Let's take a minute and look at 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. Paul really encouraged me here not to read the wrong verses. So I'm going to work very hard to read the correct ones. I think they'll also be displayed up on the, uh, up on the wall. As you're looking for that, uh, let me give you just a little context uh, of 2 Corinthians. This is obviously 2 Corinthians. It's Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Um, In it, he's following up not only his own letter, but a letter, it appears, he received from them that they're asking questions. So he addresses these questions, um, and he encourages them um, to, to give graciously to the gift they're collecting for the churches of Palestine, which are going through a famine. But back through this whole book, And through this whole letter, there's another issue that's going on. And it's an issue of sufficiency or fitness. 
Because what Paul's really going through here is an issue in the Corinthian church that they're questioning Paul's sufficiency to be an apostle. There are men who have come in, Paul calls them super apostles, who have turned the attitude of the Corinthian church against him. And now they're questioning his authority, questioning is he sufficient, is he capable, and is he fit? And the rest of the letter, throughout this letter, what you'll see is he'll say, my fitness, I am fit, I am capable, I am an apostle. It's by the will of God, and it's in Christ. Christ makes me sufficient. So let's look at our passage now. It says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? It's a great question. And certainly, Paul is one of many who have been asked that question. In 1775, the Continental Congress asked George Washington to become the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. And I would love to go into a lot of detail about his history. I don't have time for that. Um, but if we did, you would find out he's a very interesting man. Um, Washington accepted the position and moved from Virginia to Boston, or the Boston area, where the fight was already underway when he got there. Now, he had some initial successes around Boston, as as you all specifically would be well aware. But the tide turned when the British moved down to New York. And in rapid order, Washington lost New York. And then the British went almost unopposed, completely taking over New Jersey. Things were getting bad for the Continental Army. Men in Congress were asking, is this man fit to do the job? Is this man really capable of what we're asking him to do? Now, if you knew Washington's history, you would know he had never led more than a company of men. And in fact, in his first mission, it was such an utter failure that he started the French and Indian War himself. That's how bad it went. In his own heart, I'm sure Washington said, I don't think I'm capable of this. But it was even harder when those around him started to lose faith in him. The fitness of a late of a leader, his capability, his ability to lead, has been called into question, as I said earlier, for centuries. Since the beginning. Look at Moses. That's that's one of the first people we can look at in the Bible who's questioned. His own brother and sister in Numbers twelve questioned his ability to lead Israel. Right after that, a man named Korah stands up against him. 
and leads a number of people in opposition to him, all saying, what makes you sufficient to lead this? Moses was a wise man. He was a humble man. And he didn't stand up for himself. He said, let God choose between us. A lot of wisdom in that. His sufficiency, he knew, didn't come from anything he had within him. Remember, he was the guy who was like, Lord, I can't, I can't go to Pharaoh. What am I going to say? You know how bad I speak. He came up with a whole list of reasons he shouldn't be the guy. And yet God said, I am sufficient for you, and I'm going to go before you, and I'm going to do these things. Amen? God is sufficient. And that's, that's what we find also with Paul. Paul doesn't say, hey guys, look at me. I can do this. He says, God is sufficient. If you notice, most of his letters, how does he start them off? He starts them off as, by the will of God. I'm an apostle by the will of God, not because of anything that's in me. In our scripture, God gives, or, or Paul gives us three points. And the three points that I really want us to kind of walk away with today is that God gives us Christ as our victor. He always leads us, right? God gives us the message. That is Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. And God gives us Christ as our sufficiency. These three things combined are the reason that we can be assured of our future success. It's all Christ. He goes before us. He's all around us. He's the message we speak. And he's the one who makes us sufficient. It's all Christ. When I was younger, I loved parades. I mean, who doesn't love a parade, right? You know? And when you're young, they're exciting. There's all the bands. There's all the marching units. You know, they used to have lots of marching units in it. Lots of military units. And yeah, I liked military units. Go figure. Um, Lots of drums and lots of big floats, you know, and they were the fire engines and sirens, and it was just a cool time. There was all kinds of stuff going on at a parade. Now, as we just found out from Leslie, we also have a parade coming up. And so I encourage you on November 24th to go out and do what we're talking about today with the message and know that Christ is sufficient as you go out and hand out cards at the parade, and as you hand out burgers, and as you talk with people in our community. It is Christ who makes us sufficient for those things. Um, So, a parade. The Santa Parade. Who's the primary character in the Santa Parade? Santa Santa Claus. There we go. Well, that was a tough one, I know. Um, (laughs) Throw throw that ball at slow pitch. Um, Parade, and, and the fact that Santa is the lead guy in the parade is interesting. So everything goes before him. Right as you get towards the end of the parade, what do you have down there? Santa seated up on the big pedestal, right? And he comes through and people shout and they cheer and they're all excited. Well, the Romans had parades too. Theirs was called the Triumphal Procession. Now, the Triumphal Procession was sort of set up the same way. 
Nick is giving me the signs that I'm supposed to do a something. Take the wire. Better? Good. Very distracting. Throw the wire over my shoulder, like a continental soldier. No. Um. <laughs> See how quick I am on that? Um. So, <laughs> no, not at all. So, triumphal procession. Um, so, like the Santa parade, where Santa's up on the big pedestal, the triumphator, or whoever was the, the guy who was the main general who won this massive victory, would be the guy who got the seat, like Santa sits on. He had a big chair, or he had chariots and they would drive him into the city. Now, before him would come a series of people. The first would be trumpeters and heralds, and they would go forward. And what did they do? They got people's attention. They got them to come out, so they would see what was going on. And they told the good news of victory. They told the people of Rome that the battle had been won, that their nation was victorious. Again, right? Well, what comes behind them? Captives. All these captives. And it would be the leaders of the land, their best warriors, uh, sometimes their families. Behind them, all the treasures of that land. Wagon loads of gold and precious stones, sometimes of, of statues or something like that. And then exotic animals and exotic plants from the region. They would bring all of that next. And then walking behind them would be the Senate. And notice the Senate was walking. Behind them came the triumphator, the victorious general. And the victorious general was in a chariot, carried by horses, drawn by horses. And then behind him, as the final thing, his legion. All those who followed behind him and looked to him to lead them well. That's the picture we get from the triumphal procession. Now, there are over 500 examples of that, so we're pretty sure that it happened regularly, often. And for the Corinthians, this would have been something they understood. They would have picked up on this really quick. When Paul uses the example of a triumphal procession, they had an immediate picture in their mind of what that was going to look like. The fact that Christ leads them in triumphal procession had an immediate impact in their mind as they kind of placed, oh, that's where Christ is. Here's who we are as the followers of Christ. They would have understood that. Corinth was a Roman colony. And as a Roman colony, um, it had been built, rebuilt, actually, about 100 uh, or so years earlier. And so most of the population were intentionally put there by the Roman government. So the families were main families, military families, big commercial families that had come out of Rome. So really, it did make a lot of sense to them. The we get also should be similar to that. It is that Christ leads us. Christ is the general. He's the victorious general. And we, 
we are part of a very long 2,000-year procession of the legion. The soldiers that come after him, that look to him. Now, understand that as a soldier, um, you had certain things that you were looking for. You look to your leader, right, uh, especially in the time of Rome, to be the guy who led you into battle. So the Roman generals were very much at the forefront of the legions. Usually right at the center of things. In fact, the hottest fighting would be around the general. Not because he necessarily intentionally wall makes it very clear that this was a victorious general. And as a victorious general, his soldiers look to him. They trust him. Soldiers all over the world, I think, are probably pretty much the same. They look to their leader. And when you've got a good um, leader, a good commander in a unit, you'll know it. Not because of what other officers say about him, but because of what soldiers say about him. Very interesting. You want to find out how good a commander is, ask the troops. Troops don't lie. They're very blunt. I love soldiers. They're very blunt. If the man's incompetent, they're going to tell you. And if he's not, if he's good, they'll tell you. And if it's a good unit with good troops in it, don't badmouth the commander. Don't be somebody outside the unit and badmouth the commander. Because there's going to be a fight. That's just how it's going to go. Because that's how soldiers think. They support their command. They support their unit. Right? So, Paul looks up and says, look, we've got a victorious commander. We've got a great general that we follow. We've got a general who has provided for us. He has provided for our pay. He has provided for our food. He has provided the armor we wear. He has provided the sword and shield that we carry. He has provided our strategy. So Paul says, this is a general worth following. Paul tells us that, and it's interesting, Paul makes a pretty big um, transition here. So he's got the triumphal procession, right? That's going really well. I got that concept. Then he switches over and he says what? That we are the aroma of Christ to God. Well, that is just this whole different picture he gives us. So he, he just does this major shift right away. The aroma of Christ to God. Interesting word. If you go and, and were to study like the word aroma, you're going to go back and you're going to find its first uses in Genesis 8. Genesis 8 is about Noah. And it is post-flood. And as Noah finally gets onto the land. And when he gets onto land, the first thing he does is build an altar. And he takes some of every kind of animal and he sacrifices it to God. And it is a 
pleasing aroma. That is the same word that Paul uses as for an aroma. You see it again in Exodus 29. It comes up next. And in Exodus 29, it's the aroma, again, of the sacrifice. But in this case, it's the sacrifice that's used for the consecration of priests. Interesting just picture there for you. What we find then um, is that Paul is telling us that not only was Christ a pleasing aroma, but that we are a pleasing aroma to God. That's what he's saying here. Christ was a pleasing aroma, but we who are in Christ are also. It says, for we are pleasing, for, bleh, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. Well, we are that aroma of Christ because Christ is in us. If you are a believer, John 14 tells us that we are in Christ, and that Christ is in us, and that we're to abide in Christ. Paul tells us that we, in Romans 12.1, that we are a living sacrifice. We are the aroma of Christ, because Christ is in us, and that is pleasing to God. I think it's important to note, though, that in this section, Paul points out that that aroma is going to have an effect. Effect on two different kinds of people. There's going to be those who accept the message and those who don't. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. To those who are perishing, You reek. You, as the believer, you stink. They want nothing to do with you. But to those who are being saved, there's a sweetness about you and the way you smell in Christ. It's something attractive. Something they'll be drawn to. You have to remember that however that reaction comes, it's not you that they're rejecting. It's Christ in you that's being rejected. It is the aroma of Christ in you that's being rejected. When I was growing up, I had a, uh, a man. I was in, went to church as a, as a young man. And it was a relatively, at the time where we lived, relatively rural area still. Lots of farms. And we had a man who went to our church, one of three or four farmers that went to our church, named Mr. Pennington. My brother's smiling. He knows him. Um, now, Mr. Pennington, um, I've got to remember, I would have been much smaller, seemed like a pretty large man to me. And he had hands that were big and, and rough from working and had a long beard and glasses 
And he was always smiling. He was always making jokes. He was one of the folks that was a greeter often at the front of the church. Mr. Pennington had another characteristic about him. He smelled. The man lived among cows. He worked all the time in the barn. I think even in his Sunday best, he probably was out in the barn doing something with cows. He always smelled like cows. Now, that could be a good thing or that could be a bad thing. I, as a little, when I was little, I loved it. I loved it. It was, it was uniquely him, and it wasn't a bad smell to me. But you know when you're little, how people talk about things when you're not, because you don't exist? <laughs> well, we had people, I would, you would walk through, and, and there would be people who would say, that man stinks. And they would avoid him. They didn't want to be around him. Literally, they would avoid having to talk to him or to shake his hand or to come into contact with him because his smell was offensive to them. Like I said, I always found being at the farm, I didn't get to go often, but when I was there, I loved it. I loved the smell of cows and silage and manure and I just loved it. It was just one of those, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a weird person, but it's true. Um, so, many years later, Mr. Pennington died. Uh, and I happened to be home at the time, uh, and so I went to his viewing. And I don't see it so much here, but in Maryland there was a lot of open casket type things. So I went forward to pay my respects. Mr. Pennington was laid out in his brown tweed suit that he used to wear most of the winter. And I noticed something as I, as I looked down at him. It smelled like cows. It did. I kid you not. You could smell cows because of that suit. And that's how we're called to be. We're called the smell of Christ. In life and in death, whether we're at church or whether we're out on the farm doing the work, or whether we're at a restaurant, wherever Christ calls you to be, and whether your daily tasks take you, you are called the smell of Christ. To some people, That'll be offensive. They won't want to be around you. But to other people, it'll be warm. It'll be inviting. It'll be comforting. That's the power of Christ in you. He is called to penetrate you completely. The scent of Christ, the aroma of Christ is called to fill you completely and to be with you wherever you go to the day you die and even in your final death. And I pray for me that that's exactly how it will be. That in life or in death, Christ will be evidenced in me. This message that we have is a message of life 
and a message of death. In a sense, it is a life and death message. It has to be either accepted or rejected. In the end, there is no middle ground. To not accept it is to have rejected it. And the message is a simple enough message. We have all broken God's laws. When we break God's laws, it's called sin. That's, that's what that means. When you hear sin, it means you've broken God's perfect laws. Now, God is a perfect, loving, righteous, and just. And because he's perfectly just, he can't allow you to break his laws and walk away. What kind of king would that be? It'd be pandemonium. He has to punish lawbreakers. But we also said that God's perfectly loving. And because he's perfectly loving, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life in your place, to do what you couldn't do. To live a perfect life and to sacrifice him, to use him in your place as a substitute to pay the price that you couldn't pay. And what's that price? Well, that price is death. Our sin deserves one thing. Our law-breaking deserves one thing, and that is death. That's the penalty. But God sent his son to do it on our behalf. So we had him crucified. And when he crucified him, he put all of our sin on his son, his perfect, righteous son. He put everything on him. Right? And then what did he do? He poured out his wrath on his perfect, righteous son. Wrath that was for you and for me, he poured out on Jesus. Now, As you can imagine, Jesus died. He was crucified. He died. But that's not the end of the story. See, after God pours out his wrath on his son, and it's completely poured out, and he's satisfied that his wrath is is completely poured out, and Jesus dies, three days later, he raises him from the dead. Jesus walks on the earth for 40 days, and then, is lifted up into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God. That is pretty cool. But the implications of that are even better. And that is that he defeated sin. He defeated death. And the offer he makes is a simple one. Believe in me. That's what he says. Believe in me. Because if you put your faith in me, if you put your faith, not in me, in Jesus Christ, he says, that sin that was paid for becomes yours. And what you get is righteousness. My righteousness, Jesus says. Jesus says, you get my righteousness and I take your punishment. An exchange happens. 
and the death that you should die for your sins, no longer will you have to die. And in fact, what you will get is eternal life. So if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you get all of your sins forgiven. And you get eternal life in Christ. That's the basic message of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the message that each of us carry within us as believers. And if it's not a message that you've heard before, or it's not a message that you've acted on in the past, don't leave today without taking the time to do that. You can talk to me, you can talk to Paul, you can talk to one of the ushers, the person who brought you. But talk to somebody today. Don't leave here today without making that kind of decision. This is the good news message that we carry. If you're like me, what that message does is drive me to my knees. Because it's a heavy message in in a way. Think about it for a second. Let that soak in for just a second, the message that you carry. You carry the message of life and death. Now God is sovereign, don't misunderstand me. But He allows us to participate in sharing the gospel. He's very clear about that. He calls us to it. In Matthew 28:19, it says, "Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit." Well, that doesn't happen. You don't just make disciples. Somebody has to get saved. Somebody comes to Christ. Evangelism has to occur. We have to share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone to get them on the road to becoming a disciple. That's the message we carry within us. People don't hear it unless you say it. It's great that you're a Christian and that you act like a Christian. But in the end, the message has to be proclaimed. Faith comes by hearing. So we have to speak it. That's a heavy thing when you consider the outcome. If people don't choose that message. If they don't hear that message. Like I said, I know God is sovereign over all things, but He calls us to preach it everywhere we go, to proclaim His name wherever we go. It is a message then, when I think about it, that drives me to my knees in prayer. I believe it drove Paul to his knees in prayer regularly to say, God, who is sufficient? I am not sufficient for this message. I am not sufficient for this thing you have called me to. I can't do this unless you go before me as the victorious king. Unless you are the message that I speak, that I breathe, that I eat, that I proclaim. And unless you and you alone, Jesus, are my sufficiency. We won't do it. We can't do it without Christ. Because it's Christ in me, not I. Because if I give them anything, I, it will be a failed message.
if I rely on me, I, my, I won't share the gospel. I won't tell anybody. I will not proclaim that message. Don't believe the lie. Christ is sufficient. He is your message. And He makes the way. He leads it. He goes before you. And He is your sufficiency. The writer of Hebrews tells us to keep our eyes on Jesus because He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Keep your eyes on Christ. And you won't have to worry about the eyes and the me's and the my's. Paul faced this same core issue and it was one of his competence. The very people in Corinth who Paul had shared the gospel with, who had seen come to salvation, whom he had led, whom he had taught, those very same people that he brought up, that he prayed for regularly, were now turning against him. Because of these men that he refers to as super apostles, he also refers to them, interestingly enough, as deceivers and of the devil. Imposters who come looking like the light. Paul takes time in chapters 10 through 12 of Corinthians to do something. He lays out his credentials. He says, you want credentials? Let me give you mine. A Hebrew of Hebrews. And he runs through his list. Who he trained, what his lineage is. He goes from there and says, Hey guys, let me tell you about my sufferings. Maybe you think I haven't suffered enough. And he lays out this long list of beatings and stonings, of persecution that he's gone through. He says, well, maybe that's not enough. How about my leadership of all the churches? No, still not enough for you? Let me tell you about the revelations I've had. He lays all this out. Then he says, you know all that is trash. It's all my weakness. That's my weakness. Christ, he says, is my sufficiency. Christ is what makes me competent to be an apostle. To stand before you, claim the gospel, to write this letter. Christ was Paul's sufficiency. If we could have the band come up. When I started our story, it was about George Washington. By January of 1778, George Washington was at his lowest point. Throughout the fall, he had lost battle after battle. Philadelphia, which was the capital at the time, had fallen. His army was not that they were a bad army, but they were undersupplied, undertrained, and hadn't been paid in a long time. He was at his lowest point. And on top of that, on top of that, more and more people were calling for his removal. 
He doesn't have what it takes. You may have seen the picture of Washington at Valley Forge. Maybe we'll put it up there. Um, It's an interesting picture. But historians will say that that picture is a hoax. It's a falsity. Don't believe it. It's propaganda. You can't prove any of that. And they'll say that because there's four separate instances, historically, where men have written in their diaries or letters about seeing Washington in prayer at Valley Forge. Two of them were in the woods, one was near a barn, one was in a barn. They're all kind of the same picture, though, of Washington kneeling in prayer. But historians will say, well, guys, look, you can't even get your story straight. The dates are wrong, the times are wrong, the picture of what he was, where he was at was wrong. This is obviously a, a hoax. I'd like to offer a different story. I'd like to offer that Washington was a man who was desperate for God. And that those were not misunderstandings of the same story, but separate individual sightings of Washington. Because he was a man always in prayer. If you ask his aides, they would tell you something about him from the time they started serving under him. And that was when a tough decision needed to be made. He didn't make it. He walked out of the room, found a secluded spot, and prayed. Then he would come back and give an answer. I would venture to say that Washington was in a really tough spot at Valley Forge. And so he went to the only person who could ever be his sufficiency, who could only, who could be the only one who would make him fit and competent to do the task before him. And that was Jesus Christ. We, friends, are part of a 2,000-year triumphal procession of a victorious Christ who still leads us. Maybe today you heard the victorious message of Jesus Christ for the first time. And if you did, I just want to encourage you again, do not leave here without making a decision to follow and join in that victorious procession. If, on the other hand, you've made that choice a long time ago, then I'd like you to think of something different. Over the last month, I've been going through our directory and praying for all the the families in the the directory. And I've been asking that God would make you all aware of opportunities to be the aroma of Christ wherever he has you. Maybe it's in your kitchen making a meal for the kids. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at the library. I don't know where it might be. But I encourage you this week to spend time asking God where you can share the good news of Jesus Christ. Where you are going to be that aroma. And I would ask that you also would spend time in prayer this week asking God to make it sufficient. He has. In his son, Jesus Christ, he has made you sufficient. But ask him to show you 
this week. How he's made you sufficient in Christ. And lastly, I want to encourage you this coming Sunday to give a testimony of what Christ has done during the week. How he's given you opportunities to make that mystery known. To share that gospel. To be the aroma of Christ. Christ is your sufficiency. That imagery. Wow, sorry guys. Think of that imagery, Mike, that you shared about the uh, the processional, the triumphant processional, and all of the the uh, the gala around that event of the parade. And I, I sort of remember growing up being in marching bands and stuff, and we'd have these parades because our football team won. Big, you know, big deal, right?